Hi everyone, this episode is one we recorded a while ago. In it, Chloe and I talk about sexism and women's oppression. But since we recorded it, there's been a major development in Palestine. On Saturday, in response to decades of occupation, siege, massacres and racist apartheid, Palestinian fighters launched a successful surprise attack on Israel. The far-right Israeli government has responded with a bloodbath, a war on Gaza that has already killed over 1,300 Palestinians. Nowhere in the Gaza Strip is safe. Israel is targeting residential buildings and schools. Red Flag Radio stands in solidarity with the Palestinians and their just resistance. Chloe is about to record a whole episode about this issue that explains what has led up to this moment and debunks the right-wing media talking points that paint Israel as the victim. We'll have that out for you by the end of this week, so make sure you check it out then. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode on the system behind sexism. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. My name's Emma Norton. And I'm Chloe Rafferty. And this podcast was made on Gadigal land, land that was stolen, never ceded, and that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And today it's just me and Chloe in our new studio, which is just a room in my new house that we've moved into. Uh, And yeah, we're just going to be talking about sexism, basically, women's oppression, something we know quite a lot about. Too well, exactly. Um, but not just because we are women and have suffered from it, but we've also talked about this a lot. Uh, and Marxism, we think, has a lot to offer to understand women's oppression and sexism. So we're going to get right into it. Chloe, what are the most annoying aspects of sexism in your everyday life? Day to day sexism. Um, uh, probably uh, just walking down the street. I don't know if people have seen some of those videos or studies uh, mm. that are. Uh, women always get out of the way and men never do. Yeah. Like if you just simply try and walk in a straight line on a regular footpath yeah. in society. In society, <laughs> I know. I didn't notice this. I wasn't actually conscious of it until I watched one of those videos or like read one of the studies or something and then I just started to notice it all the time. Like my instinct is to apologise and get out of the way of any man who and they never seem to stop. And also if you decide to start staunching them and just standing you know, like refusing to get out of the way, they take offense. They get really upset. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like the whole lifetime of socialization that women experience, uh, you know, to be uh, bend over backwards, to be accommodating mm. to other people, to constantly be putting other people's needs before your own means that, you know, I know like around the office at my work, seeing women bump into inanimate objects and furniture and apologizing yeah, uh, compared to, you know, the way that, you know, men are socialized to carry themselves in the world, you know, the classic thing of man spreading um, on public transport. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just one of those just like everyday expressions of just like how much gender shapes just how we embody ourselves in the world. Yeah, and how unconscious a lot of it is because, like you said, it's been socialized into us over, over our entire lives. Um, and I think it's, yeah, stuff that you often don't even think about or notice like one thing that I'm quite conscious of these days is women getting talked over all the time um it's kind of part of just not taking women's ideas seriously but like just the the um frequency with which women who are mid-sentence get interrupted and the topic just completely changed on them is really noticeable when you start to think about it Hmm. yeah and uh bunch of studies have been done about people's perceptions of women talking 
uh, in like group settings. And there's this like common stereotype of just like chatty, just like constantly gossiping, bickering women <laughs> that like won't shut up. Um, but actually like uh, st- statistically women are like less likely than men to introduce mm. the topic of a conversation uh, they're less likely to uh, misdirect into a new topic of conversation and men are, men and women are more likely to interrupt and talk over women than they are mm. men. Yeah, but also, the like you said, the perception is the opposite. So that's also in, I think, the study that you're talking about, like um, demonstrated that both men and women think women talk too much, like shut up, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty horrific. There's lots of other aspects of women's oppression that I think are a bit more um, obvious and in your face every day. The thing that uh, I think about a lot is like the sexual objectification of women. It's just fucking everywhere. It's so ubiquitous, um, you know, in advertising, in movies, in TV shows. Um, you, you know, it's not uncommon to see a billboard with a woman just, you know, half naked or whatever ad- advertising some kind of product. Um, and I think that has only kind of gotten worse in the last few decades, really. Um, yeah. And in a big way, it's been repackaged as uh, now empowerment. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so you can have the exact same kind of levels of um, just commodifying women's bodies, objectifying uh, women that you might have had, you know, Playboy putting out in the 60s or 70s or something. But now it's kind of repackaged as like women want to be sexy for themselves. Um, mm. But the message that it's just sending out to women and young girls is that your worth is how, you know, sexually attractive you can be to, to men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think like just t- framing it as kind of this individual choice just takes away the ability to analyse politically all of this stuff. This is not something that people just as individuals are choosing. It's something that they're socialised with for their entire lives is like, well, women, the idea that you have to look good, you have to always look good, someone's always looking at you and judging the way you look, um, you exist to, you know, um, to satisfy the desires of men, that gets very ingrained in people. And so it's not just this simple daily choice, you know, for people to um, slather on a whole bunch of makeup or get plastic surgery or something like that is something that society is also doing to women. Yeah, and it's, I think, part and parcel of how a bunch of the language of the women's liberation movement and like the sexual liberation movement then has now just been kind of repackaged and used to sell the commodification of women's bodies. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, it was a good progressive step forward in the women's liberation movement for women to demand that they were allowed to talk about sex and talk about the fact that they had desires and, you know, that um, they were sexual subjects, not just objects. But I think, yeah, that stuff has been repackaged to say that just constantly choosing to self-objectify is somehow feminism or it's somehow liberating um, when it kind of is just not that dissimilar to um, being made into a sex object constantly by society. I think the other aspect of it um, that seems progressive to some people um, in the modern world is, you know, the idea that as long as there are enough different types of bodies represented and you can have curvy Barbie and <laughs> whatever, um, you know, all of the different like nationalities are, are properly represented, then it's less offensive. But it's still just telling women that all we care about is the way you look. That's what you have to offer. That's your value in society. Yeah, I think the new Barbie movie is a good example of that, really, um, because you can have a President Barbie and a writer Barbie and you can have, you know, uh, 
more Barbies that are women of colour, disabled Barbie, um, and even, yeah, cur- one singular curvy Barbie. Um, but the point is, like, Barbie's job is to look good um, and that has been always what the, you know, Mattel toy uh, was all about. Um, and in some ways, actually, to sell just like sexist stereotypes about women today, corporations uh, do have to repackage it as like this is feminist now. Yeah, and Barbie has to be able to do more things than just the dishes. But it's still, yeah, it's still like the purpose of it is a poseable doll who is there to be looked at, there to have clothes put on, taken on and off and, and whatever. Um, and it's part of, you know, Barbie for so long has been part of the way that young girls are socialised to be women who constantly have to think about the way they look and worry and have horrific, like, body image issues and stuff like Barbie has contributed to that. So I'm very, uh, I have to admit, I haven't seen Barbie the movie yet, but I'm very unswayed by the hype around it. The idea that it's some feminist masterpiece. Yeah. I remember when it used to be the women's livers that, you know, would want to burn Barbie. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah. I think actually in some ways, the fact that like the right in America have like attacked Barbie, like the just absurd um, far right uh, is the greatest gift to Greta Gerwig to try and sell um, the Barbie movie is somehow progressive. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, also, it's pretty fucking offensive because it was made by Mattel, this like criminal institution, this corporation, and they're just like fucking loving it. They're making millions and millions, billions of dollars out of it, really. And they're able to revamp this sexist doll, not really to alter how sexist it is or the role that it plays in socializing young girls, but to make it like more part of the 21st century and more modern. And yeah. We're living in a pretty contradictory moment, I think, because obviously sexism is not the same as it was in the 1950s or the 1800s and the beginning of capitalism. Um, And today there's like a, uh, I think, quite shallow but ubiquitous uh, veneer of feminism on most of liberal Western capitalism you know, like most corporations try and pitch themselves, you know, that women's day breakfast, that kind of thing. Um, at, at the same time, lots of the inequalities of society are as bad as they've ever been in terms mm. of women's actual economic and social position. Um, and you have this like really rabid conservative right backlash against the kind of limited gains that women have made in recent years. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of those, uh, the the more ingrained social elements of women's oppression. Um, one of the obvious ones, I was actually surprised to look up the the statistic is about the gender pay gap. Um, apparently it's 22.8% now in Australia. And I remember years ago saying, oh, it's outrageous. It's 17% or something, you know. So it's actually gone up, which we knew that was the trajectory over the last sort of 15, 20 years. Um, particularly I think neoliberalism has contributed to that because it's been pushing down wages and probably pushing down the wages of women uh, harder. Um, but that's, you know, that's a, a massive um, discrepancy of about a fifth and it has huge ramifications for women across the workforce. Yeah, it's just trillions of dollars globally for the capitalist class that just goes right into their pocket. And the gender pay gap, like, it kind of gets, like, referenced briefly by, like, you know, most, you know, NGOs that talk about, like, women's position. But, like, really actually looking at um, the compounding impact that things like the gender pay gap have on women over their lifetime. That, like, one of the main expressions of women's oppression is 
we're just poor. <laughs> we're just poorer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're that, fucking poor and we do the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> and that flies in the face, I think, of like a lot of what more middle class feminists like uh, feminists focus on about women's oppression. Obviously, like representation and um, uh, women's position in power and uh, uh, cultural representation, all of those are aspects of um, sexism in society. Uh, but for most working class women, their key thing is just being a lot poorer. Yeah, totally. And having fewer options because of that. I mean, you know, it does get referenced fairly frequently, but women in domestic violence situations or just shitty marriages, like, makes it actually harder to leave if you are getting paid, you know, a fifth less than your partner or something like that on average. Um, and also it means the conditions of women's work is often a lot worse. Like, you know, there's higher rates of casualization, higher rates of part-time work. Uh, amongst women. I think you looked up this stat, Chloe, but the uh, like women who have in the first five years of having kids end up losing like 50, 55% of their income, which is fucking crazy. Whereas men, you know, it stays the same for them. So, you know, clearly the, there's some obvious reasons why that happens. That it's the, it falls to women mostly, uh, the burden of, of uh, looking after children. But I think it's worth saying that all of that kind of stuff is not just about ideology and some ideas in everybody's heads that women should be baby makers and and homemakers it's written into the workforce and how it's structured like you know the parental leave schemes for example make it a lot easier for women to get leave than uh, for men or often like um, men's parental leave is a lot a lot shorter so it naturally falls to to women to um, to do it similarly even if that was perfectly equal um, you know, women tend to earn less. So who are you going to choose to be the stay-at-home parent in an economy where you more and more have to have that um, because childcare is so expensive? It's going to be women. So women, if they don't leave the workforce, end up, um, you know, in short, uh, sorry, casual work or, or um, part-time. Yeah, and the picture of women's uh, oppression and exploitation in the workforce is remarkably the same as it has been in the past, despite the kind of surface level changes in ideology. Um, I saw a stat that came out um, from the 2023 report into um, women's position in the workforce in Australia. And women and men largely work the same jobs they did 35 years ago. So women are disproportionately in the caring and clerical professions, uh, while men, you know, disproportionately in construction trades and labouring professions. Yeah, and I think one of the conservative arguments that kind of defends the pay gap or actually denies its existence is to say, well, women just choose this work, you know, and there's a really sexist version of that that says, well, women are just natural carers or whatever. Um, you know, they love this stuff. They do it. They do it even if it wasn't paid, you know, teaching, nursing, all that. They just love caring for people. Um, and as the nurses in the 1984 strike said, you know, uh, Dedication, Dedication doesn't, pay the, doesn't rent. pay the rent. I was going to say caring doesn't pay the rent. None of that pays the rent, basically. Um, but I think like what's really happening, the, the kind of social process that's happening across history there is that it's actually because these are feminized industries that they get paid less. So it's kind of the other way around. It's not women just love choosing really low paid work. It's that women for various historical reasons have been pushed in large numbers into these industries some obvious ones, you know, like um, the expansion of the t education sector, the um, healthcare system and stuff happened at a time where 
there were fewer women in the workforce. So when they entered the workforce, you know, it was um, those kinds of roles that they filled and the sexist ideology was able to be used against them to say, well, yeah, this is a, 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 a you know, profession that we don't value very highly, that we won't pay very highly. Um, and there's a classic example that we always use. I know you would have heard this as well, but um, in Russia, the, a similar thing happened, but with doctors in the um, expansion of the medical system um, under Stalinism, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century. And it was because women were, had not been uh, very active participants in the workforce until that point, they were pushed into these roles. And so that involved getting all the, all the you know, um, education and qualifications that you need to become a doctor but they're severely underpaid there, like way worse paid than doctors in the, the rest of the world. Um, and I think that, you know, is because you can use sexism and the idea that women just love to care for things or whatever as an, idea, as a, an excuse. Yeah, and the reverse actually happens as well. So in industries that previously were feminised where a shift happens and they become male-dominated, usually that means that the pay in that industry goes up relative to other industries. So... I know um, in like early when, you know, computers were new, <laughs> uh, women dominated uh, programming actually in the kind of early years. Not totally sure why, probably this, this similar kind of uh, situation where they're kind of entering the workforce at the same time as this uh, becomes a new career choice. And so it's one that uh, can op- uh, be opened up to them. Uh, but as that became more uh, professionalised and male-dominated, uh, pay went up um, like relative with that. So it just whether or not it's got an industry going from being male-dominated to feminised or, um, you know, uh, from uh, female-dominated to male-dominated, these shifts happen. So, yeah, the ideology comes second. And, yeah. you know, you can pretty much describe like any kind of job in more masculine or more feminine terms. Like nursing, for example, oh, it's all about caring, looking after patients, you know, Florence Nightingale. Actually, nursing is like a lot of just like lifting up heavy patients. It's like quite hands-on thing. So yeah. I think, um, yeah, a lot of that ideal is just kind of sexist ideology after the fact. Yeah, and like with the the tech industry, I think it was partly you know women were seen as like typists because mm. they were like secretaries and they did all this clerical work and stuff. And it's not that different on one level if you're like programming computers to being the person that types things out and then when it shifts as you said to um, being a male-dominated industry the ideas about it all change it's super scientific and like technical and something that women's brains couldn't handle you know um, even though a lot of women actually are the people who like invented the first kind of um, techniques in that industry. Yeah, so you can see that in industries that are dominated by um, women, that they are systematically paid less relative to industries dominated by men. But the studies also show like every single industry in Australia has a gender pay gap that favours men today. Um, and, yeah, there's very little progress made um, on that front since the kind of last big waves of class struggle. I think the other thing is like seeing how this kind of compounds throughout women's um lifetimes uh, to make them significantly um, poorer. Uh, So there's the big stretch of time that women often uh, have to take out of work or are forced into part-time work um, if they do have uh, children. Um, And that means that the gender pay gap plus all of that, um, uh, you know, period outside the workforce or, you know, working uh, significantly less means that women retire with way less superannuation. So women approaching retirement have 23.1% less superannuation than men of the same age. And this is one of the factors that means that the fastest growing demographic of homelessness in Australia is women over 55. 
Yeah, that's fucked up. Well, I think it's helpful to get into some of the details of how women are oppressed in the economy because often that level of detail is not part of discussions about sexism and women's oppression. For Marxists, it's that's the basis, really, of where these ideas come from. And that can seem fairly... Uh, disconnected from the stuff we talked about, of you know, objectification of women's bodies or men refusing to get out of the way when you're walking down the street. But actually, it's those behaviours and um, and uh, you know the the inferiority of women that's built into the economic system that then produces ideas that women are inferior and and reinforces them. Of course, there's also a whole bunch of ideology being pumped out to say these things, um, you know, in the education system and um, in the media and so on in different ways. But that economic picture is really crucial to why those ideas survive, uh, even after they've been challenged, you know, for decades, 100 years by, um, by women demanding better. And the other really important structural aspect of women's oppression that we haven't really talked about yet is the family. You can already probably see how it's so intertwined with all of that. Like, um, it's you know the, one of the reasons why women are paid less overall and end up economically poorer, as Chloe said, uh, is because of the childcare that they do in the family. But not just childcare, like caring for the elderly, caring for their bloody partners as well. Um, you know, they often have to put um, put their work on the back uh, burner to to do that kind of thing. And this is often. When it is talked about um, by feminists, it's often talked about just in terms of just like the individuals and like um, people's individual experience of this in terms of like, you know, unequal men not pulling their weight in the home, which, you know, obviously socialists argue, should argue that people should not do that, not be sexist pigs in their personal life. But I think that fails to step back and look at actually overall the massive benefit that this setup uh, has to capitalists, the ruling class um, overall, which they're actually quite aware of um, and play a you know a big role in uh, reinforcing um, the family unit as what Marx and Engels talked about as the privatised reproduction of labour power. So, you know, couples don't just need workers to um, turn up on a Monday morning at 9 o'clock, whenever it is, but they also need to ensure that, like, outside of the workplace they're cared for, they're socialised, uh, they have relatively stable lives, um, and the family unit does a huge amount of uh, labour that is totally unpaid um, and that if capitalists had to pay for it, um, it would just be trillions of dollars. Yeah, I think they ha- there's been some attempts at calculating that. I don't know how you would do that, but, yeah, it definitely runs in the trillions of dollars um, and would be a significant amount of, of like, the actual, you know, value produced in the economy. Um, the other thing, like you mentioned, you know, the role of the family in socialising people, socialising the next generation of workers to, you know, respect authority and it's almost like a tiny little microcosm of the kind of um the workplace where you have to go and get bossed around and told what to do that's kind of what it's like being a child you have to listen to your parents you have no rights or freedom you're kind of uh under lock and key um and i think that those all of those roles together that the family play is why for conservatives and the right like the family unit is always this really cherished protected thing they they campaign for um, you know how, like, so many of the uh, the, the kind of right wing campaigns they've run are put in terms of this will destroy the family, or um, we need to protect Australian families, and you know, just that language I think shows how, even if they're not totally conscious of why exactly, oh, this is like overall saving us massive amounts of money and socialising the next generation of workers. 
um, that's why it's been so useful to them to use that kind of um, ideology. Yeah, and obviously um, the picture of the family, uh, what it looks like has changed a lot in the history of capitalism. That's, I think, part of capitalism's adaptability that like family units now also can include same-sex couples and um, probably less respected uh, but you know, single parent families are kind of part of the mix too now, uh, in a way that, you know, there was much more conservative and homophobic hostility to um in the past, but still fundamentally that function um of raising the next generation of children, looking after the elderly, like mm. uh particularly in the neoliberal era, like the big attacks on like the welfare state, big attacks on, you know, pensions, um, uh, and the aging population, like the ruling class are very conscious of needing to rely on the family uh, to pick up a lot of the slack with aged care, which is like disproportionately done by like middle class women caring for their parents or their in-laws uh, when they're older. Um, uh, and if they're not capable of doing that, um, then paying to outsource that. Um, yeah, this is you know totally essential to you know capitalism stability. Yeah, and when they outsource it, it's almost entirely done by women as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think another aspect of the family under capitalism is there's just a stupidity in it. Like it, we don't think about this because we were just raised in families of some description, all of us pretty much. Um, but the idea that you organise society based on like these discrete little units, everybody has to have a little house to themselves, um, nothing is really done, none of those uh, acts of caring for people cooking food, cleaning the dishes, doing the housework, all that stuff. None of that is done communally. It's all done separately. So you're kind of like redoing the same processes on an individual basis every single day, every single night. It's kind of a waste of energy and resources on one level. And it's why there's such drudgery involved in housework. I mean, even if you're not like a stay-at-home mom or something, like I think everyone gets a sense of like how much fucking drudgery is involved in just like maintaining your own house, um, unless you're a rich person who can pay someone else to do it for you. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of that's I think that way of organizing society is something that capitalism has relied on for so long because it plays those other roles: socializing people, keeping people atomized and separate from each other, um, and also. Uh, not to be underestimated, it's a great market. I mean, mm. every single family has to buy their own, you know, separate little white goods. You've got to have your own fridge. You've got to have your own washing machine. Very little of that is actually communal. Um, and, you know, when you see workers' struggles and revolutions and things, a lot of that stuff starts, is like the first things that, that has to break down um, and you have to have more kind of communal um, activity to just to keep ourselves alive. I've been thinking a lot about um, the family unit during the housing crisis. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the state of the housing crisis in this country um, and just how much uh, the ruling class can just rely on, like, people just having to uh, extend their adolescence well into their 20s (laughs) and fall back on, uh, you know, if not the bank of mum and dad to to pay for, you know, uh, your first loan to get a mortgage. Um, or just like having to, you know, live at your parent parental home um, well into your twenties. I think it was like John Howard that um, abolished uh, any unemployment benefits for teenagers and people in their early twenties. And like, there's uh, obviously a massive economic benefit to the state for doing that, um, and an ideological one that's just like, you know, um, 
you just have to rely on uh, your parents if you can't get a job and you know youth unemployment's always higher than general unemployment yeah and it, but it also re- like just having a policy like that that on one level is just about saving money for the government you know in a neoliberal era it it reinforces the idea of like the the need to rely on the uh, the nuclear family the dependency of children the need for parents to spend you know two decades of their lives um looking after children while working and stuff like that um and i remember like <laughs> you know how many of my friends had to um say that they had to like write a letter to the government basically to say oh my parents divorced kicked me, me. out of <laughs> home and like divorced me and stuff um because it was the only way to get the Just government get the to doll. admit that yeah. they'd have to <laughs> they'd have to pay you the doll or whatever yeah and i mean maybe it goes without saying but like this all of this work this uh, i think estimated it it would be another half of gross domestic product gdp um if you paid for it that goes on in the home is disproportionately carried out by women and the statistics are actually pretty shocking because obviously it's not as extreme as it was in the 1950s when there were more people who um, stayed at home. Um, uh, women always, working class women always worked, but there was a higher proportion of women who um, stayed at home, particularly when their children were very young. But the stats now are pretty shocking too. Like uh, women of all ages spend over nine hours a week more than men on unpaid work and care. Um, and they spend more time on unpaid work even when they are the primary breadwinner. Jesus, yeah, yeah. So even when they p- get paid more, yeah, uh, even the when they're, pro- yeah. yeah, that is fascinating because it also just shows you the the like sexist attitudes in society do play a massive role in like what decisions get made on an individual basis, um, and also just the like the kind of the thing that women are socialized to have that need to constantly clean and look after people and like it is your role it's your job um and society constantly reinforcing that means that even when you're working longer hours and getting paid more um you feel it's your duty to do that kind of thing I think all of these uh, different aspects of women's oppression, the institutions of the family, uh, exploitation of the workplace and all of the ideology that kind of um, uh, evolves out of that is uh, something only Marxism can actually explain. And I think in particular only Marxism can explain the changing picture of women's oppression because you said before, like what women's oppression, particularly the ideology of it looks like uh, today is very different to the 1950s or um, early capitalism. Uh, and that is shifts in capitalism, both structural um, and ideological, as well as obviously like the struggle of uh, women and the working class uh, to win more gains. I think if you look at some of the kind of core moments where that has uh, shifted, um, it's really shaped by the needs of capitalist production. In many ways, the women's liberation movement that kind of uh, kicks off in the late 60s and early 70s um, is pushing on a bit of an open door. I mean, it probably didn't feel like that to them. It felt like they were running up against a a wall of misogyny. Um, But in terms of the changes that had already begun to take place um, was a really core uh, part of how ideas started to shift and women just had more opportunities actually to challenge their subordinate position in society, a bunch of the like 
just like women couldn't open a bank account and, uh, you know, all of those just, you know, women couldn't drink at the public bar, for example. Um, talk to comrades from who were involved in activism in like the late 60s about like you would have to just fight for your right to just get served a beer in the same public yeah. bar as men, for example. Um and just, yeah, the fact of women's, like, mass participation in the workforce um, is a big part of how um, ideas start to change um, as well as women uh, pushing to change ideas, but also the social power that women had as workers. And women had always been part of the working class. Um, you know, they'd never actually, most people didn't ever live the, you know, the picture of the kind of middle class um, housewife, but this massive expansion of women into the workforce um uh, which capitalism wanted, needed um, that labour power, uh, but then produced these end results that um, they couldn't foresee and yeah. kind of didn't necessarily want. Um, definitely, I think the you know the conservative right were absolutely horrified by what was unleashed after the post-war period. You know, um, the women's liberation movement. I think the point of saying all of that and trying to take into account the kind of changing needs of capital and the and the um, contradictions in the system is to say that yeah the system is very contradictory and you know you know just like it creates its own grave diggers in the working class well it created the basis of um not just the women's liberation movement but a lot of the radicalism of the 60s and 70s and capitalism will continue to do that continues to create opportunities for people to fight back against the system and um and challenge some of its very core institutions so the point of today is not to go through um Unfortunately, the whole storied history of the women's liberation movement and and those, those that radical period. But I think it's a question worth asking of kind of what came out of it. And because as we've already discussed, women are still oppressed, so things did change. But um, women are still very much structurally oppressed in the economy and uh, in the family today. Um, and I think it's worth saying that you know. The radicalism of the 70s really did start to go backwards <laughs> from the 80s onwards. And what we kind of ended up with today, and we referenced this a little bit at the start, is on the one hand, a kind of corporate feminism that says to, to women, um, the basis of your uh, oppression and sexism is just that there isn't enough representation for women in positions of power um, in, you know, representations in culture and stuff like that. And so we just need to overcome that and bada bing, bada boom, you'll, you know, get rid of women's oppression. Um, and then I think on the other hand, there's a kind of, and we talked about this as well, but like this idea that uh, the this, this sexual liberation and women's liberation movement has been turned into the idea of self-objectification that, um, and I think this is really core to neoliberal ideology that we're all just like, making our own decisions and choices on the marketplace. Um, you know, the the ultimate freedom under capitalism is the freedom to buy something and choose something. And so um, now, you know, women's liberation has been rebadged as the right to take pole dancing lessons or the right to get like plastic Fillers. surgery, yeah. and, you know. Um, and as long as women are choosing that of their own volition, then you can't say anything about it. You just have to kind of um, applaud it as an aspect of women's liberation, which I think is a real, both of those, the corporate feminism and that self-objectification are really shallow ideas about what is required for women's liberation. And what Marxists demand is something much, much more thoroughgoing than that, that actually gets at the core of those two institutions, the workplace and the family. Um, the women's liberation movement 
uh, obviously made some really important gains all through the 60s and 70s in actually just sweeping away a bunch of the laws, the legally enshrined inequality. Um, but I think they both won and they lost in a way. Like they won uh, for you know middle class and ruling class women uh, the right to elbow out a bit more of a space in the kind of public positions in the ruling class and middle class, you know, more increasingly uh, more women journalists, academics, increasingly even politicians um, and that kind of thing. But in terms of the conditions facing working class women, very little has changed. Like obviously those legal victories were important, but all of the structural economic um, uh, setup still remains. Mm. And I think that's where that and the kind of decline of the um, level of class struggle um, in the in the late 70s is what has led to a massive shift at Rightwood and I, th- I think probably even more like right-wing today. Yeah, I mean, it's also you can see the kind of that thing about winning and losing in issues like abortion rights because, of course, well, I mean, okay, let's not talk about America right now, but in most of the Western world abortion rights have been won um, and increasingly in Latin American countries and, and elsewhere. And, uh, but it's kind of been won on certain terms, which is that it's still fairly inaccessible. It's still not really seen as just a medical right that you have. It's seen as this special category of something a bit evil and bad that you have to like apply for through, you know, special, um, special dispensation and it's expensive. I mean, that's another thing that makes it fundamentally inaccessible to working class women and I think we've talked about this on this podcast before, but like I'm from Western Australia and there, there is one fucking abortion clinic in the whole state. Um, you know, like how is this, how does, as if this really makes abortion accessible to the vast majority of working class and poor women. So I think you can see in that, that the, I, mean, I think a lot of the, um, the, the gains are sort of like that. I mean, gender pay gap. Yes. It's abolished in, in theory, in legal uh, terms, but it exists in practice because, you know, they can just get away with it across the entire economy. And like you said, in every single industry. So um, I think, yeah, much more space has been made for middle class and ruling class women to rule and to exploit um, and to, you know, write books and whatever. But uh, yeah, for working class women, there's still massive limitations and actually in some cases, because of neoliberalism, things have gone backwards. And you can also see it in the case that, you know, um, in, in some studies of behaviours and attitudes, including towards the nuclear family, attitudes are going backwards in a lot of countries. Um, so there's more kind of sexist attitudes towards women. Um, there's a sense that you should marry young and early and get into the nuclear family and stuff. Like uh, that stuff is on the rise. So yeah, I think there's real limitations in in what was won out of the 60s and 70s. And, I mean, however, it's probably worth saying the women's liberation movement was like a million times more radical and left-wing than whatever calls itself feminism today, which is, you know, corporate feminism and that kind of self-objectification we talked about. Yeah, and I think that that starts to get at the heart of, um, you know, an argument that Marxists make, socialists make in response to um, the kind of feminist approach to fighting women's oppression, which is that, since class society emerged, women have been divided by class. And so this idea that you can have just some cross-class women's movement, um, women don't have 
a collective interest, you know, across the class divide. And we can really see that because there are more and more very public uh, women in uh, the ruling class um, who are carrying out the agenda of the capitalist class, including direct attacks on the position of working class women. Like we've had a woman prime minister now. Um, we've got uh, a new, uh, the first woman on the Reserve Bank of Australia, Aww. Michelle Bullock. Yes. Um, yeah, it just really <laughs> makes you proud. I know. Um, and her, she was chosen because she thinks exactly the same thing as all the as other Philip Braddock. <laughs> 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 What's his name? <laughs> Philip Lowe. Philip Lowe. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like she, so now we have a woman who's going to yeah. raise interest rates, fuck over working class mortgage holders, yeah. basically tell us that like we should have hundreds of thousands more people unemployed yeah. uh, for the good of uh, the economy, you know, for the banks and for big business. Um, which Does I think, it like, feel better when a woman says that to you? Oh, yeah, definitely, <laughs> yeah. Like, the sisterhood is just, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's strong. Yeah. Um, I think like in response to that, like a lot of uh, people can recognise, you know, uh, you know, just ruling class warrior women like, you know, Hillary Clinton notoriously was like um, on the board of uh, Walmart, which was like the biggest employer of women and, you know, notoriously low wages where like women had to be on food stamps while they were working at Walmart and she resisted um, a push uh, to increase wages there. People can kind of see that kind of through like left-wing people, the cynical kind of corporate feminism. I think though a lot of people just think like, oh, that's just kind of women kind of internalising misogyny. Like they're just Being kind of forced to act like men. Yeah. yeah, like in a man's world to get ahead, they have to kind of take on um, male attitudes. And I just think that totally misses the point yeah. that they're part of the ruling class, that, that they might experience some interpersonal sexism. Julia Gillard Clinton definitely did. But all of that is trumped by their class position, which relies on institutions of sexism. Yeah, definitely. And it means that, like, not only are they ruling class warriors that will attack the working class and all that kind of stuff, but they will actually undermine the fight for women's rights on on many levels. So um, the classic example, which we've already used on this podcast, but we will use again, and we will never cease telling you that on the very same day that Julia Gillard made the misogyny speech, she also cut the single parent benefit. On the same day, people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like, like Labor have actually, they didn't um, uh, overturn that this year. They half overturned it. I think they raised it not all the way back up to 16, which is what it was at, but a bit less than that. But this is like studies have shown since then, it's like one of the like single biggest attacks on the poorest section of women in society carried out by like our first, um, you know, women prime minister. Um, and because that's just, that's just part and parcel of just like neoliberal capitalist like status quo, um, which, yeah, is in every aspect disproportionately going to affect women. Um, but Gillard is held up, you know, she does tours now all around the country, you know, um, talking about, you know, feminism and sexism um, and it's just this real uh, disconnect. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I think though, you know, a lot of people look at that, especially like the example of Hillary Clinton and just say, yeah, well, pretty understandable she's a white feminist and you know she, and rightfully white feminism has gotten a a really bad reputation but i think it's not like it's really important to hone in on the thing you said that it's about class and your loyalty to your uh, class interests even when they go seemingly against the interests of the identity group you're a part of and a good example of this kind of um 
form of intersectionality is Penny Wong because, you know, she's got, she's a lesbian woman, she's uh, of Asian descent and, I mean, on both of those counts, so in the Gillard government she was one of the main people driving the argument against marriage equality as a lesbian, you know, and she was put to the front of that uh, argument specifically because she's a a lesbian and she had kind of cred to say, no, we should just accept um, civil unions. Um, And now as an Asian woman, she's the face of Australian imperialism in the Asia Pacific for fuck's sake. I mean, you can't get these are pretty good examples, I think. um, It's not just about being white. It's not just about being a cis woman or whatever or not queer it's about people are much much more interested in following their class interests than in some idea of the sisterhood or uh, the queer community or whatever um that always trumps so the class always trumps everything else Our across well the other thing that's really important to understand for Marxists is that there's the potential in the working class for solidarity that undermines this kind of sexism and and, um, the gender divide. And I think that can be hard to uh, accept on one level because obviously men take up a lot of sexist ideas. And I think particularly with sexism and, um, and women's oppression, it's something that gets so ingrained in us from such a young age because we're socialized into it that people don't even know they're doing it half the time and they're doing something sexist, you know, in their relationships, walking down the street, uh, just at the pub with their friends, you know, all sorts of sexist crap happens. Um, So it can seem like an odd argument to say that working class men don't actually have an interest in, in sexism and in women's oppression. But I think because women's oppression is, you know, fundamentally it's a product of the system. It's about how the capitalist class runs and controls um, the working classes about how they exploit us um, and all the stuff we talked about with the family as well means that actually working class men don't have an interest in it. And they, um, you know, and we'll talk about some of these examples later, but in the course of struggle, often find themselves having to confront the issue of sexism and opposing it, uh, of having to, you know, um, uh, challenge their own sexist ideas or being challenged by um, the women involved in the struggle and that sort of thing. So we think there's a basis for real real solidarity there, um, not just a few nice men deciding they're for women's rights, but actually the, the bulk of the working class uh, fighting for women's rights. And it's so totally essential to winning anything yeah. and is how we've won most of the major steps forward for uh, women in terms of economic and social reform. Um, that's the social power of working class men and women to unite, to use their power as workers to strike. Um, and that's why, like, particularly in this country, like the trade union movement um, has been at the forefront of winning, uh, you know, huge uh, steps forward um, mm. for women, uh, both in the workplace and outside of the workplace. Yeah. I mean, things as basic as equal pay, which, okay, we as we said, <laughs> In reality, there's still a big gender pay gap that's gotten worse. Um, but even like legally destroying that and in some industries and in some workplaces getting genuine equal pay, that was the result of a, um, a push by the union movement, even in sections of the unions that were majority male, male that didn't think they had some interest in women being paid less. For one, they're, you know, I don't see how men really have an interest in their partners being paid less if they're, you know, in a relationship with women. But 
Um, also, it, the part of the point of the gender pay gap is to drive down wages overall. So there's actually no economic benefit to working class men to um, you know be paid more than women. It's not like the boss takes away from women and goes, here you go, guys, here you go, blokes, you know, enjoy the extra pay. He's just making more profit out of that. And it means, you know, you can always say, well, look, women are will- willing to do it for less and, um, and that sort of thing. Like it's, it's the same with migrant workers, you know, it just pushes down wages overall to have a section of the workforce that is undervalued, paid less uh, and mistreated. Hmm. And it was always the left wing of the trade union movement, particularly pushed by socialists and communists, um, that put forward uh, the demands of women uh, for things like equal pay or for things like defending or fighting for um, abortion rights. Often Marxists get accused of being uh, class reductionists, but I think it's important to say that this argument about class struggle uh, being the strategy for fighting uh, against women's oppression it's not an argument that women just need to subordinate their demands to things that are just universally good for the working class. Like actually a lot of the universal things wouldn't necessarily improve women's conditions like just being paid more, wage rises, better health and safety in the workplace, uh, more secure work as opposed to part-time work. All those things do improve it. But the argument is not that, oh, well, we just have to fight for those things because they're good for everyone and they're also good for women. But actually the working class can take up this particular demands of the oppressed. Um, so, yeah, things like equal pay, reproductive rights, um, you know, universal childcare, um, and, you know, at the best kind of high points and moments um, of working class struggle, that's been taken up by uh, trade unions, both men and women. Yeah. And I, one thing that you raised with me earlier, Chloe, is like, that Marxists also don't have a class reductionist attitude when we're analysing the world and why things are happening. So it's not like every single uh, attack on women is just because it's like economically profitable to the bosses to do so. Um, you know, this this it, everything is kind of mediated by this whole complicated system of the nuclear family, the workforce. There's also politics and, um, you know, the need for the right to push a really um, reactionary agenda that often includes just uh, promoting the idea of the nuclear family. It's not like they, they're rubbing their hands together with glee thinking there's going to be immediate profits from promoting the nuclear family. It's that that's generally, stead, you know, had them in good stead uh, to, to um preserve the stability of the system. So it's become part of how um, a section of the capitalist class and a section of the um, the political class do politics is to, you know, campaign around all of that stuff. I mean, the, maybe you should say it, but the example you raised is um, about abortion in the US mm. at the moment. Yeah, there was an article I think in Jacobin I was reading that put forward this idea that one of the reasons why in the United States abortion um, has been overturned at a federal level um, and it's under attack is because of demographic shifts that mean that the ruling class want women to have more babies. Mm. And I think that that is actually a reductionist argument mm. and not one that um, revolutionary socialists um, would argue. One, it kind of doesn't fit with the picture of like the advanced capitalist world everywhere else, like abortion rights mm. are, you know, either very established and not likely to be overturned um, or are being won in a bunch of countries like Argentina 
Um, I think the explanation is much more political. It's about, you know, the yeah. rise of the, you know, Trumpian far right, um, you know, uh, decades, many decades long campaign of the right of the Republican Party uh, to try and reassert a bunch of those conservative family values. So the argument that like women's oppression is rooted in class society is not an argument that everything is just, you know, directly connected to yeah. profit or directly about that, but it's that all of this kind of ideology and um, uh, institutions uh, spring up from and are shaped by that core of exploitation in the work in the, in the workplace. Yeah, definitely. So we're not crude, <laughs> unlike Jackman. That's mm-hmm. why you should read Red Flag, people. Another example, just to go back to the idea that struggle is what has, you know, class struggle in particular is what has won so many rights for women. Um, I wanted to talk about the Builders Labourers Federation because I think they're a really excellent example. We use them literally all the fucking time. But um, they they basically forced bosses on different building sites to hire women and bosses were not particularly interested in doing that. They had all the sexist ideas about women not being able to do that kind of work. Uh, and the response of the builders' labourers was literally to work in uh, women workers. So they'd just get them on site, give them a hard hat, I presume. Probably didn't wear them back then, actually. Um, and just have them start working uh, until the bo- and basically threaten the boss until he um, paid them and put them on the payroll and all of that kind of stuff. So um, they actually had a whole bunch of women who got involved in the Builders' Labourers' Federation at the height of its radicalism. And the um, the documentary that was made about the BLF that we often recommend called Rocking the Foundations was made by um, a film student, uh, a woman who ended up being one of those women who got worked onto a building site and got a job that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting when you watch that documentary because it's not like all of these working class men just had like spectacular anti-sexist mm. attitudes. Um, there's like an interview with one of the uh, women who's, you know, a socialist from the women's liberation movement that's, who wants to get this like well-paid job that she can also be involved in all of this radical trade union yeah. activism that's going on, things like the Green Band. And she's talking about her, I think, offside or like the person that she's working closest with. Um, and he's like pretty... Uh, starts on the idea that she's capable of doing this like hard physical labor um, and then after a while um, is like convinced that you know she's very capable of it um, and she kind of challenges his like sex attitude. she's like well your wife could do this any woman could do this um, and it's a kind of good example of about like well yeah lots of working class men take up the sexist attitudes that are totally ever present everywhere in society but the uh, process of particularly class struggle, but even just working alongside women, but in this instance, class struggle can actually start to um, challenge those attitudes. Um, and the socialist movement, um, which, you know, a big part of the women's liberation movement and the radical left wing of the trade union movement in the 70s, like that was really the heights of um, pushing on that, um, both in terms of winning reforms, but also massive changes in consciousness um, amongst working class men and women. Yeah. Well, maybe we should talk more about that because, you know, one thing that we say as Marxists is that ideas change in struggle. So we don't think that the working class as it is today with all the current ideas it has in its head are, you know, the exact same people who will make a revolution. Actually, struggle changes people and makes them um, capable of making a revolution and fundamentally transforming society. And I think this is true around the issue of, of women's oppression and sexism. Uh, as well. And there's, you know, there's a whole series of kind of recent revolts and uprisings where you can start to see this 
happening. I mean, we've talked about the Arab Spring on this podcast a bunch and done a, uh, a wonderful interview with Hossam Al-Hamalawi about it. And that was one example of where, you know, women um, play a really important role in the revolution. They're involved. That starts, that just that alone starts to challenge some of the sexist ideas about what they're capable of. Yeah, there's this um, great story during the Sudanese revolution in 2019 um, where women played a really big role in like the occupations of the um, square in Khartoum, the capital. Um, where there's this, I think it was a Facebook group or some social media group um, for women and uh, girls uh, to talk about um, marriage and like how to how to date in a kind of conservative, uh, very sexist fashion. And in the course of the revolution, uh, this group got transformed into a discussion forum for how women can participate in the revolution and like raise all these demands about their own autonomy. So like uh, not just the ideas of men can transform, but women's own attitudes about themselves, what they're capable of. Um, And you saw that in this society where, uh, you know, quite extreme like uh, interpersonal sexism was quite uh, normalised and promoted by um, the ruling class, um, that, yeah, attitudes towards women um, tra- were transformed because they were part of, uh, you know, leading the struggle, you know, the famous images of women, uh, you know, leading the chance at the revolution and, and raising um, demands of the working class overall but their own demands too. Yeah, I think that is crucial. It's not just women participating but it's like the political atmosphere that means that all the press groups start to raise their own demands and say, well, if we're changing everything, we want to have a piece of the pie. Like we want to, we want to, we have more to fight for on one level because we have this um, particular type of oppression. So you see, um, yeah, I mean, that's really what the 60s and 70s was about as well. Um, You know, it started as a kind of um, radicalization based on the Vietnam War and um, especially in Australia, like cl- the beginning of um, the development of class struggle. But, you know, very quickly women are like, we want to, we have our own demands and our own, um, uh, you know, shitty cross to bear. So we want to raise those kinds of demands and make them part of the movement. And I think, you know, in class struggle and in revolutions, you actually also have the social power to start to do something real about those demands and like really win them um, from the ruling class. Yeah, I think the first women's liberation pamphlet um, in Australia was handed out at an anti-Vietnam War uh, demonstration. So really getting a sense of how all of these political questions were became were interconnected and people started to draw links when they started to struggle around one question. Um, it you know began to raise and when class struggle rose began to raise um, the question of women's oppression as well and you know gay liberation really closely related to that as well coming out off the back of um, you know consciousness um, being raised around um, around sexism and just how reactionary the family unit and gender norms are yeah and I think it's not just that you know women always had these ideas and like the struggle allowed men to finally see the error of their ways it's like it actually radicalized women so that they could even articulate some of this stuff and think about it politically and formulate demands and and kind of start to understand it and stuff like you really um if you read it's dated now but like some of the um the like second wave feminist stuff from the 60s and 70s it's really like this awakening for a lot of women about like how shit it and what a burden it is to um, slave away in the family and um, to be, you know, locked out of kind of universities and um, and positions of of any kind of authority. Um, 
so it's like it's it's confidence as well that it gives the oppressed to actually say we deserve more and, and we can you know demand it yeah actually um something that diane fields has been on the podcast before has written about the struggle for equal pay um in the insurance industry like it wasn't necessarily just this like divide between like oh the men tended to have like shitty attitudes to equal pay and the women all um you know had better attitudes often like older women had more conservative ideas and did kind of think oh maybe you know men are the breadwinner and so you know if there's a downturn women should get the sack first or um so it, it was also it's about politics um uh and yeah also that process of struggle is about transforming the ideas of the oppressed themselves yeah yeah, definitely. Yeah, and like in that insurance strike, socialists played a really important role as they have in lots of these examples of actually um, pushing the envelope of the kind of political ideas that are acceptable in the movement and and raising the stakes and stuff. Like actually, uh, I guess it's, the point is it's not an automatic process that everybody just because they've participated in a strike or struggle magically become Marxists or something. The active role and intervention of socialists has always been really important. So class struggle's always been at the core of how women's position has advanced uh, and is definitely what we need to see more of today. But, you know, socialist argument is not just that we need to win a whole series of reforms, but that society has to be totally uprooted and transformed from the bottom up, uh, obviously to get socialism, but as part of that to get rid of the material basis um, of women's oppression. And that's why a revolution is necessary, um, not just to throw people into struggle and transform their ideas, that's totally core too, but to actually uh, get rid of the core institutions of women's oppression, mm. exploitation in the workplace uh, and all of the unpaid labour in the family unit. Yeah, exactly. It would just require a, I mean, if you start to think, well, the material basis of sexism is the family on the one hand and that whole way that's organised and the unequal position of women in the workforce and then you take into account the fact that those are really intertwined and reinforce each other, then the only way to get rid of women's oppression and ever be able to think about like a non-sexist society is to undermine that social basis. So you would have to totally reorganise the way that um, that people are cared for in our society. That would have to be done on a communal basis. Basically, if you are alive, you were born, you deserve to be taken care of and you don't have to have like... Um, you know, a single parent or a, a two parents or whatever to to do that for you, but that's society's responsibility as a whole. Um, and in the workforce, you know, not just men and women, but everyone would have to be equal. And the Russian Revolution is just the best example of this. Like not only is the revolution kicked off by women workers on International Women's Day, rioting, striking, you know, overthrowing the Tsar, but when workers did briefly take power in Russia, um, this is not just, you know, taking over uh, their workplaces, transforming production, but also there were all sorts of radical experiments in trying to make all of the labour that is, you know, uh, the responsibility of overwhelming women in the home, responsibility of society. So you saw, you know, experiments in communal kitchens, communal childcare, uh, because the Bolsheviks, Marxists recognised that, um, you know, women's oppression is not just rooted in attitudes, it's all, yeah. it's actually gotten rid of yeah and russia ended up being because of the revolution one of the first countries to have universal suffrage for women and uh, it's and i think the nature of that suffrage is worth noting as well it wasn't like you know just in other countries where 
women could once every four or five years or whatever come out and put a mark on a ballot paper. It was a much more um, a much more hands-on democracy because uh, part of what took power in Russia was the workers' councils and the Soviets. And so that meant that women, by virtue of the fact that they worked and were part of the working class, um, you know, were able to have a say in how their workplaces were run. Um, you know, this is particularly important in the textile industry, which was overwhelmingly women uh, in Russia. Uh, and through that participation, they you know, had um, some say and control democratically over the whole of society and the direction of the revolution. And I think that um, workers' democracy at the point of production is the key gain, um, but it's worth saying because Alison's like, might not know, but heaps of just also basic political rights that we had to fight for all through the 20th century and lots of the world hasn't won today, uh, they achieved in the worker state in Russia, like abortion rights, no-fault divorce, um, you know, uh, the decriminalisation of homosexuality, a whole bunch of, you know, questions of gender and sexuality um, were won in 1917 in what had been a deeply, uh, you know, sexist, uh, deeply conservative society because of the transformations that went on in consciousness um, and people were won to those positions in the revolution. Yeah, and it was a continual process. Of, like we're not saying any of this happens automatically. It was a continual process of debate and discussion and and people coming to realise, working class people coming to realise that it, it was not in their interest for women to be the fucking people who stayed at home and... Um, and did the dishes or whatever, but women, yeah, exactly. Women had to be full um, participants in this new uh, society. And so, you know, it was after a series of debates that abortion rights was introduced in Russia, um, but it was democratically decided on by, um, by the workers' state. So, yeah, all of that is to say that for Marxists, the whole basis of women's oppression is economic and um, and institutional. So that is what has to be changed. And it means basically we need a revolution to overthrow capitalism if we have any hope of um, ever overthrowing oppression um, and that those two things will have to be overthrown together. I think, you know, sometimes they're, um, they're like the patriarchy is posed as like a separate system over here and then there's capitalism over here. Um, and, you know, maybe you can kind of challenge each of them separately. But for us, that's just one system. <laughs> it's called capitalism. It depends on women's oppression and uh, on sexism. And if you overthrow one, you overthrow the other. Yeah, actually, interesting. I think Stalinism has a lot to answer for um, in this idea that women's oppression and, you know, the oppression and exploitation of the working class overall are kind of two separate spheres, capitalism and the patriarchy, because um, really like a lot of people who theorise this separate sphere, it came off the back of thinking that Stalinist Russia was a socialist society. (laughs) And if you looked at, you know, this horrific society uh, created um, the Soviet Union um, under Stalin, uh, where women were awarded like Mother of Russia medals for having like lots of children and like all the worst aspects of women's oppression were reasserted during the counter-revolution, then it does make you question like, oh, maybe if that's socialism, I guess that's not how women are going to get liberated. But I think it is really important to like reiterate that argument that a challenge to all of class society will require a challenge to the institutions of sexism and vice versa because that is really what informs today like what is our strategy uh, for the way forward, um, you know, is it uh, one of trying to find a place for women within capitalist society 
um, and maybe win incrementally like little bits of tolerance and, uh, or is it actually a radical transformation of society? Well, with all that in mind, let's talk about the way forward today. Um, I guess probably worth ruling out corporate feminism. Uh, I think that's a total dead end. Um, and really the idea that, you know, we can have a, a women's movement that's this kind of big cross-class thing, you know, us and Gina Reinhart all hanging out together uh, in the sisterhood fighting for women's rights. I think that was more of a reality in the kind of um, 60s and 70s when there were still basic legal rights for women were lacking. But today, I mean, the sisterhood is absolutely shattered by class. So I think there'll never be the return of something like that again, except in the most shallow forms, which is what corporate feminism tries to do. Say like, we're all in this together. Working class women, you should just celebrate the fact that there's a woman at the head of the RBA now, now, and we hope you end up unemployed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And what we need to see more of um, is class struggle. And today and for a long time, women have been a really core essential part um, of the working class. Um, Women are actually now a majority of the trade union movement. You can see some of that demonstrated in some of the strikes that have happened Mm. Uh, in Australia recently, you know, uh, nurses, teachers. um, It's been a couple of years now, but the childcare workers trying to fight for equal pay. And not only do we need to rebuild the trade union movement, I think what's really core is that we need to rebuild a socialist current in it. We need to rebuild socialist organisation because that's really what is going to drive um, a revival in militancy and also, uh, you know, what has historically pushed the trade union movement to take up questions of the oppressed and in particular women. So I think that if you... uh, if you want to challenge women's oppression, join your union definitely. Um, but also, um, you know, we've got to rebuild um, socialist politics, get involved in socialist organisation. Definitely, yeah, be a socialist. And I think it's worth saying, like, there are so many demands still to win um, today. But to be honest, like, most of them are working class demands. You know, the middle class women and the ruling class women, they've kind of gotten their way. They're in there. They're at the levers of power. They're the head of all the fucking banks and, you know, they're well represented in uh, television and, and so on. I'm not saying there's, there's still sexist elements in, um, in like elements of representation, but for the most part, the demands that need to be raised and won are working class women's demands. It's things like free uh, access, free and accessible abortion on demand, things like universal childcare, equal pay, not just in on paper, but in reality. Um, so those are some of the kind of the demands that have to be raised in the here and now. But like we said, the the fundamental problem is that uh, women are oppressed due to the family and the workplace, the whole way that capitalism um, organises production and reproduction. This is not something that is going to be done away with uh, just with a few strikes or a bit of struggle here or there. It's got to be getting rid of the whole system. Well, today we've been talking about the system behind sexism, the connections between capitalism uh, and women's oppression, uh, and you get a sense that there's a lot involved in trying to understand the system and strategies for confronting it. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're a socialist or you want to explore socialist ideas, really encourage people to check out Socialist Alternative um, in every city that we have a branch uh, in in this country, 
we put on weekly discussion groups, Marxism discussion groups, to talk about some of these core ideas. There's actually uh, a week of that discussion series where we talk about uh, women's uh, oppression and sexual oppression, um, but we discuss all sorts of topics like what is capitalism, how does revolution fit into that, how does imperialism fit into that. Um, and so, you know, as always, we really encourage people, don't just uh, be an armchair Marxist, listen to us, sit at home, maybe enjoy, maybe agree with, maybe disagree with what we have to say, mm. actually um, get involved in the socialist movement. Yeah, definitely. And we've got a book that goes along with that called Introducing Marxism, and we will put in the show notes a link that will allow you to find a Marxism discussion group in your city if there is one, which there probably is. That's all we have time for, and thank you for listening. As always, we have a world to win.